So, uh, Chris, I think we should start here. Yes. You do the leader. Hi, Neil. <laughs> Hi, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Chris and Neil or Neil and Chris show, depending on who introduces who first. Um, today, we're going to add uh, John Milne into the conversation. That's M-I-L-N-E. He, uh, beyond being a Nobel Prize winner, no, just kidding, he's not a Nobel Prize winner. He, uh, he's yet. A, yet. <laughs> he's an ER doc uh, who built one of the 10 most innovative hospitals in the world uh, that happens to be located in a suburb of Seattle called Issaquah, not far from my house. And beyond healthcare, which we won't start that topic there, um, we'll talk about a couple other subjects uh, today. John. Want to introduce yourself, say hi, so people know whose voice is whose. Uh, this is John. So, hello, everyone out there. <laughs> and Ian is uh, also uh, always listening in to help look up anything that should come up during any of these episodes. <clears throat> Topic-wise, John, I think you just had, you know, I've talked about Chris maybe as if he's some sort of legendary superhero to you sometimes. Um, but I know you had some questions we were having lunch just now, just about Chris in general. Um, about what makes him tick, you know, why he can't sleep at night, anything. Um, feel free to jump in, and then then we'll jump to healthcare, and then hopefully we won't talk about China on this episode. So uh, uh, this this mythical figure who lives down in L.A. and 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 you know transforms the world of finance uh, that is Chris Adele. How? So what is it that you know? The, my question to to Neil over lunch was is this: uh, What is it? What are the what's the burning question that really drives him to do what he does? In and obviously making money is a fa uh, fascinating thing, but there's such a seems to be a deeper spiritual level. Between uh, to what it is that that uh, brings you, you know, the passion that you have in your work, and so that was the the fundamental question I asked Neil here to, uh, earlier today, and he said, "Just hold that thought and ask it in about a half an hour." So I'm asking it now in a half an hour. <laughs> Thanks for holding on to that thought and expressing it so clearly, John. It's great to catch up with you again too, since our first meeting. Uh, in Coronado, I think about this all the time. I think my um, it's a drive for truth and for honesty. Um, you know, the the money world attracts a lot of flies, <laughs> promoters, etc., and um, even a lot of hope. And I think um, for me, it's always trying to separate the wheat from the chaff, the truth from fiction. Uh, and it it um, it's what drives me. That's really that's really it. I want the cleanest, clearest, um, and simplest view uh, of the world. But you know, it, to paraphrase Einstein, um, everything should be made as simple as possible, but no simpler. But also, yeah. um, as close to the truth as possible is what we should strive for. And <clears throat> I'll tell you, it's been. Um, it's been a great, great challenge these last few years. Um, it's amazing the way the world has has uh, come around, and it's a uh, an expression I think of our collective psyche. We're all very, very hopeful that uh, we don't um, suffer from that condition that um, has come to be known as 2008 on the brain. Mm. So. What do you mean Everyone's by that? What, is it, what, is it, what does that mean for you in this context? 
I think, um, for me, we've put so much of our collective hopes in um, the central bankers um, and, and just in some general, looking outward for some hero to save us um, uh, and, and our financial markets or believing that that can be done or that we could somehow avoid um, a recession or some other uh, um, adjustment in the financial markets. I'll give you an example of what I mean. On August 2nd, 2012, <clears throat> Mario Draghi, who's a European central bank head, gave a press conference. The markets had been falling, and um, so he rightly, like all the central bankers do now more regularly than not, held a press conference. And the press conference was a disaster. He announced a lot of stuff. One of the things he said he was going to do was this new powerful weapon, and the, the weaponized talk is another example of how we have to they think of this, the markets, in terms of combat. But this new weapon was the OMT, or Outright Monetary Transactions. Now, if it doesn't make sense to you, don't worry, because it's nothing but words. That's all. Um, what do the Texans say? All hat, no cattle? Uh -huh. <laughs> um, and <laughs> after the conference, the the financial market sold off. The DAX, the German stock market, fell by 5%. Um, the Dutch bourse fell. The Italian market fell. The peripheral bonds, meaning the bonds of um, the non-core EU countries, um, Portugal, Spain, Greece, um, soared. I remember that the Spanish bonds yields went way up from 4% to 7%, something crazy. I mean, so you can imagine what happened in Greece or a place like Cyprus. Um, it was a disaster. And the Financial Times published a headline um, that evening that read um, Draghi's Blunder. So I thought, well, good, this is it. The, the markets are coming to a good reality check, they know that the central banks can do nothing to create prosperity. They can print money for sure, but that's not the same. And they can't create income with which to pay the debts and the credits that they create. So we're really finally coming to uh, some sense of reality. So I went to sleep that night kind of feeling, um, while the markets were in some turmoil, that this was the beginning of an adjustment that was fair. And John, the next day I woke up and Lo and behold, the very same publication, the Financial Times, a highly regarded financial publication, <laughs> um, had a headline, Draghi's Bold Move. And I mm. was stunned. I read down the paragraph and it said, um, you know, Draghi's bold and he's courageous and um, he's standing down those pesky Germans who, by the way, were not on board with any of this talk, saying that you know, any kind of um, monetary transactions that were authored by the European Central Bank had to go through the German Chancellery Court. They're probably illegal. But no, Draghi's bold and, quote, investors, unquote, whoever those are, had mistakenly thought that this was an empty promise. Hmm. Um, that same meme was picked up by the Wall Street Journal, and it was repeated, Draghi's bold, He's courageous. I mean, I wanted to suck on a gun. <laughs> it was very frustrating. To well, we're all it. glad you didn't and, do that that evening. Yeah, no. <laughs> I mean, it was just a little dispiriting to, 
to see this false narrative take hold, you know? Um, and, you know, nothing was ever done. There was no OMT. It, there, it was just hot air. Yet, it seemed to work. The, once the financial publications, of course, who get their advertising dollars from the very financial firms that would be served by this kind of talk, got on board with this false narrative, the markets recovered. Quote, investors, unquote, <laughs> I guess, felt that maybe they were wrong. And, of course, I don't doubt that behind the scenes, the European Central Bank did buy up some assets. They did um, brazenly now, most central banks, um, intervene in the markets. So I know there was some market intervention, but generally speaking, this is odd. And the markets rallied for two to three months after that. And then it was, you know, time for the relay torch to be passed to Janet Yellen, to Bernanke, our Fed, the um, Bill Dudley, famous. He's always great for a, a bounce in Bullard. Here they speak, you know, six to eight times a month. When needed, they can be called upon to offer some bullish insight, some kind of idea that the Fed's not out of ammunition or we still have a bazooka or some other weaponized talk to scare the markets into rallying. Um, I'm curious, Chris. Is this is this trend that you're seeing? Is this a is this a cultural phenomenon that is uh, you know Western Europe and the U.S. and that tradition? I mean, do the uh, do the Chinese and the Africans and you know other perhaps more enlightened societies have the uh, ability to, or are they seeking this same sort of instant fix and someone to come in like the central bank and and solve this for them and and or is this uh, is this a worldwide process of, of putting that blind faith in in the, or hope uh into that there is a, a centralized solution in this way because i sometimes see this in 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 healthcare and in medicine where i've got a patient who comes in and says you know just give me the pill i want it fixed i, I i'm not going to question whatever it is that you do and in some ways, you know, I, I wonder: is this a generational sort of a piece? Is there a is there an older generation that is that is much more blind in that versus do the millennials behave differently? Although that you know they don't have the control over the monetary policy the way you're describing. I mean, do you, is there a generational piece that might exist in terms of how these markets are behaving? Yeah, I um, I think it's a mix. Certainly. Uh, this is generational. This is rather new. The central banks themselves have gone far, far beyond their original charter. But, of course, we all, as a society, have allowed that to happen. In essence, it's our hope. We have a very large and aging population as the baby boomers retire. And um, no one wants to uh, retire in any way, uh, even marginally impoverished, so the hope is that there is some solution, um, and that's given more and more ground uh, and free reign to these um, policymakers. And so we're in this monetary test kitchen, and it's really quite absurd on the surface of it. Um, from the Asian model, there's always been a much more technocratic approach. So Japan, China, South Korea to a lesser extent, but still, um, and Taiwan to an even lesser extent, but still, have had a sort of centralized authority and always a hope in either, you know, from the emperor to um, the central party to now the central banks there 
that there's a solution. My friend Jim Bianco of Bianco Research always says there's only two kinds of technocrats, though, those who have failed and those who are about to. um, But it is fascinating because these two worlds, John, have come together. And so it really is a global phenomenon. The idea of central banking and the model that the Fed has kind of broadened themselves into, expanded into, is copied everywhere. I remember when we overthrew uh, Muammar Gaddafi in Libya. The very first thing that happened was a professor from the University of Chicago went to Libya to establish a central bank. (laughs) Now, the country's a mess. It's in civil war, but they got to have a central bank. I think the people need stability and food, (laughs) you know, a real economy, not just a money-printing entity uh, or, you know, credit creation. But anyway, I um, digress slightly, but this has, it's fascinating to me because I think one of my errors in judgment in 2012, that this was kind of the end game for central banks, or at least the belief that they can cure our ills, um, for the the economic patient can be cured by these um, PhD economists who've never had any real world experience, was pushed aside because this did become a very uh, global effort. So you do have China, you know, expanding the, the central bank expanding credit. Now, at the most alarming pace I've ever seen, total social financing we talked about before, Neil, in the last episode. This is our, this is our, our Chinese reference today. We right. Today. Total social financing is what the communist government in China calls their total bank credit or total bank lending. Uh, it's a very clever form of propaganda, too. Um, but that total social financing or total bank debt in China is growing at about a trillion dollars a month. Now, this is uh, like a Ponzi scheme. The, the, that kind of credit or debt growth that's authored by the central bank or supported by the central bank and encouraged by the central bank can't be going to productive uses. It seems more likely that all of the new debt is going to pay off the old debt. So it's, a, it's like a Ponzi scheme. And this is true of the, the, the world generally, though it's most extreme in Asia. Because if we look here in the U.S. too, we've seen this um, very, very rapid credit growth. Um, GDP in the U.S., um, gosh, GDP grew by $549 billion in 2015. Non-financial debt grew by $1.9 trillion. So the debts rose three and a half times faster than GDP last year. I don't know if that's a good trade-off. <laughs> wait, and, wait, 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 wait. Yeah. Let me go back to John's original question for you, Chris. Is uh-huh. I would actually now say, if I was describing to my wife what, what's your burning question or desire to understand every day, it's not just about truth. It's about the quest for it. So you actually, a lot like an investigative reporter, um, you know, who's phenomenal, really enjoy having to do that hard research yourself, uh, rethink through the problem, and, and uh, I guess, fact check to, to put together your own story. Is that a good way of describing your burning desire? Yes, I would say that's, that's true. Yeah, that's a, that's a good way. And then, describe. John, to kind of turn your same question back on you, do you think that the systemic failure both in finance and in 
healthcare, you know, it, it was it was interesting, Chris. Just one quick aside. I was talking to John on the way back from lunch or the way to lunch, and he was saying that, hey, uh, you know, I I wasn't really happy yesterday with the state of healthcare. It really kind of bothered me. So, do you think that the the system is broken because of a culture, because of a certain generation? Uh, because it just hasn't thought about well enough as a living organism. Uh, what, what is it you see as the reason that, that these things are all broken and you've drawn a line to connect or at least a dotted line to connect them? So in the healthcare system, as I look at it, that you know the, f- the fundamental challenge that, that really frustrates me in this has been the, the separation of individuals from their... Uh, or abdication of their role as consumers of healthcare. That at when we moved away from a scenario in the United States, at least, uh, f- where people were paying directly for the healthcare services that they were receiving, and uh, because of a whole variety of very good reasons of price escalation that was happening as technology became more and more introduced and health insurance benefits uh, became introduced in the post-World War era and became much more standard in terms of the way a, it became a benefit within employment schemes, you know, which is, again, a, a side effect of, of some of the price controls that were placed in, in, into the uh, – into the market uh, during World War II as part of the war effort. Uh, but you know th- this whole ripple effect as it cascaded, what it did is to effectively disenfranchise the patient from the way the economics of the service that they were receiving. I mean this this is it's a it's an odd market in the sense that the person who is delivering a service cannot tell the person who's receiving the service what they're actually going to what is actually going to cost them and then at the same time the person who's receiving the service generally says you know I really don't care what it costs cuz I'm not paying the bill anyway and then the person who is paying the bill is doing everything they possibly can to not have to pay the bill and create obstacles in that process. And so the entire value proposition, the way we deal with the way economies work and the way most you know, uh, economic transactions work have been turned on their head within the healthcare system because of that misalignment of incentives and that the inability of people to be able to help direct uh, their care in a way that meets with their values, and you know, in any other portion of the of our economy, uh, for the most part, when you say I'm going, I want something, and I'm going to pay the price that I need to pay for it, um, and you make a value proposition of I'm willing to pay for X because, and this is the price it is, I'm willing to to, to write that check for it, um, you know, because I understand the value. And, you know, there's, you know, we, we can get into the whole social justice sorts of questions that into healthcare is, is, you know, is healthcare a right? Is housing a right? Is food a right? I mean, and, and all those things are very important, but healthcare has become a unique market, and because of that, um, the the way the incentives have become aligned have become so um, disjointed and disconnected that it it makes it a very difficult process for 
uh, people to reform the market because it doesn't behave the way really any other market uh, would perform. So I'm either the smartest guy or the craziest guy in the world to start a uh, uh, healthcare VC fund, huh? Well, I think you're one of the bravest guys in the world uh, in, in that sense. Uh, but 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 we need, you know, obviously, you know, Ro Rosa Parks took the first step and, you know, changed, uh, you know, Although changed the world. She's so. not going to be on the new $20 bill. That's going to be Harriet Tubman. So, well, <laughs> well, maybe maybe, maybe we will uh, save the, the, the $100 bill for Neil Modi at some point. <laughs> <laughs> yes, if they don't ban cash first. <laughs> <laughs> which is being talked about they're banging that drum and you know these ideas start small but have consequences but your well, ideas Neil should have great and profound positive consequences <laughs> you know uh, it, Chris one of the things I was hoping to talk about um, you, you touched a little bit on the economic engine of SoftBank, I don't know when it was in one of our conversations or our last podcast, mm. and mm -hmm. how he went. Well, I guess it was in the Lost podcast, right? Um, uh, that we oh, Mayoshi Son, the founder of SoftBank. Yeah, I, I'm wondering about him. And where'd you say he was from? I'm sorry, I don't have. I don't remember off the top of my head. He's born in Japan, but of Korean descent, so always an outsider. So, with the, a different the, viewpoint. Yeah, and, and then the, the picture I had drawn was like, what's going on in Korea? What, what's different about their DNA, both at SoftBank because of him being the outsider and um, Korea in general uh, being what is the, the, the largest robotics per capita uh, of any other country when you know, they were nothing before? What's, what's different about the mindset that you're seeing about that in, in terms of the way they're investing, in terms of the way they're thinking about things? I'm just curious about that. So maybe that can be one of our other topics today. Yeah. Well, you know, um, the value of, well, Mayoshi Son was born and raised in Japan. Um, but uh, Japan as a uh, homogeneous culture um, always looks with suspicion at outsiders and doesn't help that they're an island nation. Um, and uh, they um, had a, a, a really great... Um, first mover's advantage in terms of technological advancement. Um, and so Mayoshi Son, kind of, uh, I'm reluctant to compare myself to him, but, you know, growing up in uh, Jim Crow South, you're, you wonder, what's the, what's the truth? Why are my people <laughs> treated differently or as second-class citizens or whatever than, than the dominant people when you can recognize their intelligence, their drive, um, their contribution. And Mayoshi Son, you know, I mean, um, being an outsider, I think allowed him to take on NTT Tacomo, the, the big Japanese telephone giant. It would be like tackling AT&T, um, you know, back in the old days, just a, a single little small startup to take on a, a giant national and government-sponsored entity. And in Japan, where everyone... Everyone, I shouldn't say that. It's too broad a generalization, but the the homogeneous culture, um, they uh, adopt a certain mindset, and it's um, almost everyone is encouraged to think the same way. And that's especially true in Japan, where they even talk about the wa of the group. And he didn't have to worry about the wa of the group. What's the, the wa? Of the, the spirit, the okay. The, the wa is the harmony 
of the group. So you can't stand outside of the group. You know, the nail that sticks up gets hammered down, <laughs> is the old Japanese saying, too. That so talks do you about think, the wall of the group. So do you think it was the wall of the group that... mind being hammered down or so, risking it. But you think it was also the wall of the group in, I guess, uh, to take the Japanese saying over to Korea. You think that was also the thing that led to them being a juggernaut in robotics and then probably going to be dominating a couple other fields in short order? Yeah, I think their competition, um, it's, it's very interesting. So part of it, I think the dynamic, it's multifactorial. Part of the dynamic was um, when I first visited Korea, I could see the, the industry in the people. They were, it was amazing. And they were, this was when I first went to Taiwan and, and visited Asia, um, 1986 and then 89. Um, and, you know, those countries were making skates and umbrellas and cheap toys. But you could really see it. Um, Taiwan, South Korea, I, you could sense, um, it's like Vietnam today, you could sense the drive of the people. And in South Korea, they always said, we're going to beat Japan. They would look at Japan, which again, had a head start. Um, and their national goal, like ours in the 60s, to put a man on the moon, theirs was <laughs> more direct to, to overtake and be stronger economically than, than Japan. Um, and they've done it. And, you know, the, the um, penetration, the number of um, industrial robots per 10,000 workers, Japan led in that for almost 20 years. Um, and by 2012 to 2013, um, they were surpassed by Korea. And I think that was a drive from the big chaebol, um companies like Samsung and LG. And, and, of course, it's part of the national spirit to just um, beat the competition, and especially Japan, which has looked down on them for a long time. So... How do you see that they do that in, in, you know, as investors? What are they doing differently beyond infrastructure? The, the guy who's as wise and as grounded as you sitting in uh, Korea is thinking what differently? What strategies are they employing differently? What is their central bank doing differently? Well, I, I, um, they don't have... Uh, the, the economic structure is different. The chaebols, the big families that are vertically integrated, dominate and pretty much run the economy um, as separate silos. They do coordinate policy in a sense, but they don't have strong labor unions and other things that have um, limited the expansion of robotics and labor-saving devices here in the U.S., for example. So um, the society in some ways is not as open as ours, but um, in many ways you see this throughout Asia. You know, we talked in the last episode, too, about China and how the central government of China for centuries has always favored these giant engineering projects, whether it's the Great Wall, the Three Gorges Dam, the Grand Canal, now building giant cities. <laughs> These are large engineering projects, and um, they take it upon themselves as a challenge to do that. But to build the Three Gorges Dam, they moved um, some 600,000 residents 
I mean, in America, you couldn't imagine something like that happening in the span of a year and a half. So the, China, the plus side... The government says you're moving, you're yeah. moving. Eminent domain is now law. You do it now. Right, right. right so I'm curious, Chris, right. as, you look, as, as you look at these markets then as, as an investor from the outside and you know this, this competitive advantage that you have as you think about what is the truth in these situations and you know, perhaps you've got a, a clearer eye as you look at this, how do you, how do you then you know, bring it back to you know, investment policy and, and, or investment choices that you make? You know, where's the ROI that you're able to, to do to, to drive uh, 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 impact um, in, in the choices that you're making with regard to that insight that you have in that way? Um, well, I, uh, John, have been, it's been rather frustrating. I mean, right now I see, um, and I'll explain why. So the, the, this false narrative I mentioned earlier has driven our stock market as one example. The S&P 500 is the most watched index, I think, to a price earnings multiple of 19. This is um, on current earnings, looking back over the last four quarters. This is an extraordinarily high number. And if you do um, take the last five years or 10 years normalized earnings, it's a 26 to 28 multiple of earnings on a normalized basis. This is um, literally higher than at any other time, uh, with one exception, the dot-com bubble, um, for the level of the market as measured by earnings or price-to-book value. So um, it's extraordinarily frustrating. There should be an adjustment. Mm-hmm. Also, when you look at glo- global shipping volumes, they've turned over in, four, in quarter four, 2014. So we've had a year and almost approaching a year and a half where global shipping volumes, not dollar values, but volume, this is the real deal, have been in decline. Yet every day, virtually, you hear Bill Dudley or Janet Yellen talk about the recovery, the recovery, earnings. The bellwether that's supposed to drive stocks have been falling for a year and a half following global shipping volumes. Corporate earnings are declining. Corporate revenues are declining. But the stock market keeps going up. It's a huge disconnect. So we're um, very wary, and we're thinking in our minds here as a firm to protect clients that, you know, we're we're kind of uh, suspicious of the of the developed markets, um, Europe, the U.S., the emerging markets have been hammered and offer more value. So that Mm -hmm. includes places like Russia and Brazil, where the news is awful, but the prices are great, (laughs) which is usually, you know, good news and good stock market and investment prices don't usually coexist. You're you're shopping at the discount rack is what you're telling me. Exactly, exactly. And for those, if we can connect near to far and keep our eyes uh, long-term with uh, the investments that deserve uh, a long-term time frame, then we'll be fine. But yeah, this is a, this is a, uh, it's a strange uh, world. I almost feel like I'm in the Truman Show or something. And every time I hear Janet Yellen talk about the recovery, I keep asking myself. And the only two things they can really point to now are the stock market level 
um, that it's somehow suggesting a recovery because, of course, the the old bromide is the stock market knows better than any one individual, and the stock market can't be wrong. But if that market level is manipulated both by a false narrative and direct intervention from the Fed and other central banks, it is a form of propaganda. And then secondly, this unemployment rate, which itself is a gamed number, is not some magic talisman you know, that's going to produce income and recovery, especially when the we've lost 1.6 million um, manufacturing jobs, which are breadwinner jobs, that bring a family um, more than $55,000 a year in income. We've replaced those with 1.58, just about 1.6 million, bartender and waiters jobs. So... I don't think those are equivalents. A job's not a job's not a job. You lose an engineering job or a uh, manufacturing job, those wages are far, far higher um, and much more substantial than, you know, working at a resort poolside delivering drinks. So, right. Um, right. Very different. The <laughs> truth teller out there in, 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 the, in the public space at this point is, is one of the political candidates uh, – really nailing it from your perspective with regard to what the, the real real truth is in that process? Well, I do think both Trump and Bernie Sanders are, again, kind of an expression of that collective psyche. People, I think, feel in their bones, while on the one hand, part of their brain, you know, we're all a little bit schizophrenic, I guess, in some way. We're hopeful that this thing can turn around and that there's some someone can save us. And if it's not, Janet Yellen, then someone will appear. But then there's also a, an increasing frustration that we've been promised a robust recovery, escape velocity, green shoots, all of this stuff are now going on seven years, and it just never has materialized. And in fact, the economy seems to be weakening, 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 rather than strengthening. Um, so I think, um, for example, Bernie Sanders has identified many of the problems. I don't agree with the solutions he's proposing. Um, and Trump's just really a kind of a voice of a fighter, you know, um, a frustrated person. <laughs> I would have said clown, but what do I know? Yeah, clown, but uh, he's even, you know, Neil, I've been doing a lot of meditation uh, on the Heart Sutra and compassion, and I do keep, uh, I, I'm inspired by the Dalai Lama who meditates every morning on China. Um, and does uh, compassion meditation on China, which has occupied his country and kicked him out <laughs> and threatened to kill him and arrest him if he ever returns. And he manages to view them with the eyes of compassion. I think of Donald Trump in that way, too. I think his insecurities make him all too human, you know, almost like a high school bully. You kind of, uh, when, <laughs> when you're not directly threatened by it, you kind of feel sorry for the guy. A little bit. <laughs> anyway, I'm working on it. So, yeah, yeah, that uh, is certainly clownish, though, Neil, to your point in some ways. Chris, I think we have time for one more topic. Is there anything else uh, you wanted to talk through or get the perspective on from John, more specifically related to healthcare? Yeah, John, what. Um, so you kind of described healthcare as it is, and I have a story. You know, my my grandfather's a, a physician, my dad's a physician. When I chose a finance career over um, medicine, 
my father hugged me. <laughs> I was surprised. Um, maybe he wouldn't do that today, knowing the state that finance is in. But anyway, <laughs> he thought this is back in the, the mid-'80s that the direction of healthcare was, uh, as you've described it, um, we've seen it come into being uh, more socialized, um, a difference and a separation between healthcare delivery um, and the relationship that a doctor like my grandfather, who was an old country doctor, um, and even my father, who's a pediatrician, enjoyed with their patients the time to really know them and understand them, to deliver um, real care. Um, and so he felt that I was making a good decision. And I want to ask, what do you see on the horizon that could change things back to a better and more meaningful relationship between doctor and patient? Is there anything? I think you know the there's a couple of trends that are are it'll be interesting to see how it plays out and whether or not we as a society embrace them or not because you know you it's it's interesting you mentioned you know the the role of the old country doctor and what what that relationship that they had with their um with their client or with their their patients I mean meant uh to them and the the interesting piece was you know in that era of medicine where you didn't have technology driving a lot of what what it was it was all about that relationship and and how do you come alongside uh, a a family or come alongside a patient in that moment of crisis when they're not feeling well when they're not sure what to be doing and to provide the the comfort that they need to understand what they're going through and to put it in perspective and perhaps offer some wisdom and advice but often there wasn't much more to do for them and that we've become in some ways in healthcare victims of our own success in the sense that it, we you know have become so reliant on the technology and so enamored with the attempt to try to save lives and all of the you know uh, you know kind of uh, believing our own rhetoric in some ways around how amazing it is what what medicine can do that we've lost that country doctor element to it you know that piece where you really had the opportunity to have a relationship uh, with the patient and with their family and understand the cultural context in which they lived and to understand the community uh, in which they were a part of and to really have a feel for that commons that kind of brings it all together. And so, you know, I think it will be interesting to see for us if we're able to bring back an element of what that looks like. And we all embrace the fact that it was the doctor who did that but I wonder, as I as I look at, at where healthcare is, if in the current setting, the way doctors see themselves and the way society sees themselves or sees physicians as a practice at this point, if that's not possible for it to happen, and that as a new class of providers uh, comes into the equation, it's much more focused on on that holistic sort of coaching sort of mentality that 
brings into helping people to navigate their own health and wellness and to make good decisions and to be able to provide that that comfort and sage wisdom that we used to think about in the context of what a, a physician did, but it's somehow gotten lost in the in the technical um, aspects of what what modern medicine has become. And so it it i'm I'm going to be curious to see as other you know types of providers gain more prominence within the system that physicians move into a role of much more kind of technical consultants in many ways, that this is the person who understands the pharmacology and the pathology and some other sorts of elements to it in a better place. But we stop looking to the physician to being the one who is able to provide that coaching that we always kind of seem to get from them and craft a new role within the healthcare system for a wellness coach who is able to kind of become what we always thought our primary care physician should be and perhaps used to be back in the era of uh, that country doctor, but uh, has really evolved beyond uh, or, or, or evolved out of that, that role. But I think there is a there's a real yearning when you talk to patients. Um, and so th one of the things I, I really love about medicine is, you know, the, the opportunity to interact with people when they're really very emotionally raw and there's, you know, they're not putting on the masks that they would in the same way in, you know, almost any other social context. And that's, you know, it's a very unique uh, place uh, to be when you're interacting with, with patients in that way, but it doesn't have the same, you know, the way our system is structured, the way uh, physicians are compensated, the way bills are uh, get paid in the system, that, that that level of caring and compassion doesn't drive the economic model uh, the way it's been crafted over the last 50 years. And and as a result, we've we've landed in this place where there, it'll, you know, what we really need at the core of of healthcare is caring and and having people who are in the system whose job it is to actually care. I think is going to be an interesting piece as we I think we see more and more of that in various places. Uh, oncology and cancer is going to be the you know or already is the place where there's there are navigators and and social work types of, of, of positions that are in those sorts of constructs that allow people to do it. And I see it propagating uh, in a variety of, of disciplines of how do we bring that, that process back to, um, back to the community. We have a, a program here in the Seattle metro area uh, called Global to Local. It's based out of uh, Tukwila, which is kind of in the South Seattle sort of area down, down towards the airport uh, here. And it's one of the most diverse uh, areas within the um, the Seattle metro area and some of the most uh, dramatically uh, desperate or disparate uh, you know, uh, economic sorts of climates that are there. There's over 70 different languages that are spoken in the public schools um, in the Tukwila School District. And so one of the things that, that they have done in that community which is actually working uh, amazingly well in, in terms of helping to meet the, the health needs of this very diverse community is really embracing the community itself as the organ that allows that to happen. And 
what they've been doing is bringing in um, constructs which are used in a variety of other cultures across the, the, the globe as you look at um, how community health workers in, uh, in Africa, for example, are interfacing with their, their community. And these are, are, are lay providers, effectively, you know, people who are, have got a, a, a small amount of, of medical training um, around some core uh, issues, but are often, you know, a village elder or a, uh, a respected woman within the community who have the, the re their real power and their real insight is the cultural context in which they live and interface with the community and their ability in that way to uh, penetrate into those cultural influences to drive health and wellness and change. And the physician becomes a technical consultant on the outside, but the core provider is that person who is truly embedded in the community, who truly cares about the people around them as part of that community and are able to really make a real difference in the health, overall health of the community. And so I think as we move uh, forward, it's, it's about returning to those roots and bringing back some of those concepts that you know, have been used successfully in, you know, what we look at as third world countries and developing markets, but are, you know, how do we repatriate them back and borrow those concepts and, and bring them home to be able to return the, the caring back to healthcare? That's well said, John. Thank you. Yeah. Guys, I think that's all we have time for. Thank you for joining us today, John. Yeah, John, thank you. Great to talk to you again. It was a pleasure. Thanks for the invitation, Jerry. Thank you, everybody.